Book Two, Chapter Fourteen, of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald, Chapter Fourteen, Mysie's Face. Meantime, Ericson grew better. A space of hard, clear weather in which everything sparkled with frost and sunshine did him good, but not yet could he use his brain. He turned with dislike even from his friend Plato. He would sit in bed or on his chair by the fireside for hours, with his hands folded before him and his eyelids drooping, and let his thoughts flow, for he could not think. And that these thoughts flowed not always with other than sweet sounds over the stones of question, the curves of his lip would testify to the friendly furtive glance of the watchful Robert. None but the troubled mind knows its own consolations and I believe the saddest life has its own presence, however it may be unrecognized as such, of the upholding deity. Doth God care for the hairs that perish from our heads? To a mind like Ericsson's, the remembered scent, the recurring vision of a flower loved in childhood, is enough to sustain anxiety with beauty, for the lovely is itself healing and hope-giving, because it is the form and presence of the true. To have such a presence is to be, and while a mind exists in any high consciousness, the intellectual trouble that springs from the desire to know its own life, to be assured of its rounded law and security, ceases, for the desire itself falls into abeyance. But although Ericsson was so weak, he was always able and ready to help Robert in any difficulty, not unfrequently springing from his imperfect preparation in Greek. For while Mr. Innes was an excellent Latin scholar, his knowledge of Greek was too limited either to compel learning or inspire enthusiasm, and with the keen instinct he possessed in everything immediate between man and man, Robert would sometimes search for a difficulty in order to request its solution, for then Ericsson would rouse himself to explain as few men could have explained. Where a clear view was to be had of anything, Ericsson either had it or knew that he had it not. Hence Robert's progress was good, for one word from the wise helper will clear off a whole atmosphere of obstructions. At length one day, when Robert came home, he found him seated at the table with his slate, working away at the differential calculus. After this he recovered more rapidly, and ere another week was over began to attend one class a day. He had been so far in advance before that though he could not expect prizes there was no fear of his passing one morning robert coming out from a lecture saw ericson in the quadrangle talking to an elderly gentleman when they met in the afternoon ericson told him that that was mr lindsay and that he had asked them both to spend the evening at his house robert would go anywhere to be with his friend he got out his sunday clothes and dressed himself with anxiety he had visited scarcely at all, and was shy and doubtful. He then sat down to his books till Ericsson came to his door, dressed, and hence in Robert's eyes ceremonial, a stately, graceful gentleman. Renewed awe came upon him at the sight, and renewed gratitude. There was a flush on Ericsson's cheek and a fire in his eye. Robert had never seen him look so grand, but there was a something about him that rendered him uneasy a look that made ericson seem strange as if his life lay in some far-off region i want you to take your violin with you robert he said hoots 
returned Robert. Who can I do that? To take her with me the first time I go on to a strange hoose, as if I thought anybody would think as muckle of my old wife as I do myself. That would not be manners, would it, no, Mr. Erickson? But I told Mr. Lindsay that you could play well. The old gentleman is fond of Scotch tunes, and you will please him if you take it. That makes all the differ, answered Robert. Thank you, said Erickson, as Robert went towards his instrument, and turning, would have walked from the house without any additional protection. Where are you gone that gate, Mr. Erickson? Take your plaid, or you'll be laid up again as sure as ye live. I'm warm enough, returned Erickson. That's nothing. The cold's just laying in the streets like a very devil to get a grup of ye. If ye do not put on your plaid, I will not take my fiddle. Erickson yielded, and they set out together. I will account for Erickson's request about the violin. He went to the Episcopal Church on Sundays, and sat where he could see Mysie, sat longing and thirsting ever till the music returned. Yet the music he never heard. He watched only its transmutation into form, never taking his eyes off Mysie's face. Reflected thence in a metamorphosed echo, he followed all its changes. Never was one powerless to produce it more strangely responsive to its influence. She had no voice. She had never been taught the use of any instrument. A world of musical feeling was pent up in her, and music raised the suddener storms in her mobile nature that she was unable to give that feeling utterance. The waves of her soul dashed the more wildly against their shores, inasmuch as those shores were precipitous and yielded no outlet to the swelling waters. It was that his soul might hover like a bird of paradise over the lovely changes of her countenance, changes more lovely and frequent than those of an English May, that Ericsson persuaded Robert to take his violin. The last of the sunlight was departing, and a large full moon was growing through the fog on the horizon. The sky was almost clear of clouds, and the air was cold and penetrating. Robert drew Eric's plaid closer over his chest. Eric thanked him lightly, but his voice sounded eager, and it was with a long, hasty stride that he went up the hill through the gathering of the light frosty mist. He stopped at the stair upon which Robert had found him that memorable night. They went up. The door had been left on the latch for their entrance. They went up more steps between rocky walls. When, in after years, he read the Purgatorio, as often as he came to one of its ascents, Robert saw this stair with his inward eye. At the top of the stair was the garden, still ascending, and at the top of the garden shone the glow of Mr. Lindsay's parlour through the red-curtained window. To Robert it shone a refuge for Ericsson from the night air. To Ericsson it shone the casket of the richest jewel of the universe. Well might the ruddy glow stream forth to meet him. Only in glowing red could such beauty be rightly closed. With trembling hand he knocked at the door. They were shown at once into the parlour. Mysie was putting away her book as they entered, and her back was towards them. When she turned, it seemed even to Robert as if all the light in the room came only from her eyes. But that light had been all gathered out of the novel she had just laid down. She held out her hand to Eric, and her sweet voice was yet more gentle than wont, for he had been ill. His face flushed at the tone. 
but although she spoke kindly, he could hardly have fancied that she showed him special favour. Robert stood with his violin under his arm, feeling as awkward as if he had never handled anything more delicate than a pitchfork. But Mysie sat down to the table and begun to pour out the tea, and he came to himself again. Presently her father entered. His greeting was warm and mild and sleepy. He had come from pouring over Spottiswood in search of some will-o'-the-wisp or other, and had grown stupid from want of success. But he revived after a cup of tea and began to talk about northern genealogies, and Ericson did his best to listen. Robert wondered at the knowledge he displayed. He had been tutored the foregoing summer in one of the oldest and poorest, and therefore proudest families, in Caithness. But all the time his host talked, Ericson's eyes hovered about Mysie, who sat gazing before her with look distraught, with wide eyes and scarce moving eyelids, beholding something neither on sea or shore, and Mr. Lindsay would now and then correct Ericson in some egregious blunder, while Mysie would now and then start awake and ask Robert or Ericson to take another cup of tea. Before the sentence was finished, however, she would let it die away, speaking the last words mechanically, as her consciousness relapsed into dreamland. Had not Robert been with Ericson, he would have found it wearisome enough, and except things took a turn, Ericson could hardly be satisfied with the pleasure of the evening. Things did take a turn. Robert has brought his fiddle, said Ericson, as the tea was removed. I hope he will be kind enough to play something, said Mr. Lindsay. I'll do that, answered Robert, with alacrity. But you may not expect our muckle, for I'm but a prentice hand, he added, as he got the instrument ready. Before he had drawn the bow once across it, attention awoke in Mysie's eyes, and before he had finished playing, Ericson must have had quite as much of the beauty born of murmuring sound as was good for him. Little did Mysie think of the sky of love alive with silent thoughts that arched over her. The earth teems with love that is unloved. The universe itself is one sea of infinite love, from whose consort of harmony, if a stray note steal across the sense, it starts bewildered. Robert played better than usual. His touch grew intense and put on all its delicacy, till it was like that of the spider, which, as Pope so admirably says, feels at each thread and lives along the line. And while Ericsson watched its shadows, the music must have taken hold of him, too. For when Robert ceased, he sang a wild ballad of the northern sea to a tune strange as itself. It was the only time Robert ever heard him sing. Mysie's eyes grew wider and wider as she listened. When it was over, Did you write that song yourself, Mr. Ericsson? asked Robert. No, answered Ericsson. An old shepherd up in our parts used to say it to me when I was a boy. Did not he sing it? Robert questioned further. No, he didn't, but I heard an old woman crooning it to a child in a solitary cottage on the shore of Stroma, near the Swalchi whirlpool, and that was the tune she sang it to, if singing it could be called. I don't quite understand it, Mr. Erickson, said Mysie. What does it mean? There was once a beautiful woman lived there away, began Ericsson. But I have not room to give the story as he told it, embellishing it, no doubt, as with such a mere tale was lawful enough from his own imagination. 
The substance was that a young man fell in love with a beautiful witch, who let him go on loving her till he cared for nothing but her, and then began to kill him by laughing at him. For no witch can fall in love herself, however much she may like to be loved. She mocked him till he drowned himself in a pool on the seashore. Now the witch did not know that, but as she walked along the shore, looking for things, she saw his hand lying over the edge of a rocky basin. Nothing is more useful to a witch than the hand of a man, so she went to pick it up. When she found it fast to an arm, she would have chopped it off, but seeing whose it was, she would, for some reason or other best known to a witch, draw off his ring first. For it was an enchanted ring which she had given him to bewitch his love, and now she wanted both it and the hand to draw to herself the lover of a young maiden whom she hated. But the dead hand closed its finger upon hers, and her power was powerless against the dead. And the tide came rushing up, and the dead hand held her till she was drowned. She lies with her lover to this day at the bottom of the squelchy whirlpool, and when a storm is at hand, strange moanings rise from the pool, for the youth is praying the witch lady for her love, and she is praying him to let go her hand. While Ericson told the story, the room still glimmered about Robert, as if all its light came from Isie's face, upon which the flickering firelight alone played. Mr. Lindsay sat a little back from the rest, with an amused expression. Legends of such sort did not come within the scope of his antiquarian reach, though he was ready enough to believe whatever tempted his own taste, let it be as destitute of likelihood as the story of the dead hand. When Ericson ceased, Mysie gave a deep sigh and looked full of thought, though I dare say it was only feeling. Mr. Lindsay followed with an old tale of the Sinclairs, of which he said Ericsson's reminded him, though the sole association was that the foregoing was a Caithness story, and the Sinclairs was a Caithness family. As soon as it was over, Mysie, who could not hide all her impatience during its lingering progress, asked Robert to play again. He took up his violin, and with great expression gave the air of Ericsson's ballad two or three times over, and then laid down the instrument. He saw indeed that it was too much for Mysie, affecting her more, thus presented after the story, than the singing of the ballad itself. Thereupon Ericsson, whose spirits had risen greatly at finding that he could himself secure Mysie's attention, and produce the play of soul and feature, which he so much delighted to watch, offered another story, and the distant rush of the sea, borne occasionally into the grateful gloom, upon the cold sweep of a February wind, mingled with one tale after another, with which he entranced two of his audience while the third listened mildly content it was now time to go home mysie gave each an equally warm good night and thanks mr lindsay accompanied them to the door and the students stepped into the moonlight across the links the sound of the sea came with the swell as they went down the garden ericson stopped robert thought he was looking back to the house and went on when Ericsson joined him, he was pale as death. "'What is the matter with you, Mr. Ericsson?' he asked, in terror. "'Look there,' said Ericsson, pointing, not to the house, but to the sky. Robert looked up. Close about the moon were a few white clouds. Upon these white clouds, right over the moon, and near as the eyebrow to an eye, hung part of an opalescent halo, bent into the rude but unavoidable suggestion of an eyebrow while, close around the edge of the moon, clung another, a pale storm halo. 
To this pale iris and faint-hued eyebrow, the full moon itself formed the white pupil. The whole was a perfect eye of ghastly death, staring out of the winter heaven. The vision may never have been before, may never have been again, but this Ericsson and Robert saw that night. End chapter 14